Episode 173 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you by cloud accounting software FreshBooks, offering an unrestricted free trial to you. To claim it, go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. So many of us feel stuck in the situation that we're in and we stay there because, well, this is what I've always done. This is what is expected of me. This is how I make money. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. I'm back. I'm glad you are too. Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where we talk about things like leadership, personal development, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship. Today, you and I are teaming up with author Jeff Goins, whose latest is Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. I'll ask Jeff to share about how mastering your mindset is the first step toward thriving in your creative endeavors, effective strategies for marketing your creative work, the keys to leveraging your art to further finance your creativity, and a whole lot more. Though you can't necessarily tell a difference from listening to the podcast, uh, just a few weeks ago, we completely redid the Read to Lead Studios, which uh, is housed in a spare bedroom in my home. We also did some other improvements uh, to our home. And when it came time to work with our bank on uh, some of those uh, projects, something that came in real handy was my cloud accounting software. As you know, I use FreshBooks and have since 2009, and FreshBooks made it so easy when it came to all the questions from my bank that I needed to have answered. Sending them, for example, a profit loss statement for a particular year was a breeze. Using FreshBooks, all the information was already there. I just had to click a couple of icons inside my dashboard, and they had what they needed. Anytime I want to see whether or not a client has viewed an invoice I've sent, FreshBooks will show me that. I can see right away any outstanding revenue, total profit for the year on the front page of my dashboard, my spending, and where I might want to consider curbing it. I'm looking at it right now, and I can see a couple of places where I could be doing that. All that to say that my business could not survive without FreshBooks cloud accounting software. And if that is something that you are in need of, I cannot recommend a better solution than FreshBooks. They also sponsor the show, which I am thrilled about, especially having used it for as long as I have. And, and this special offer is, is one you definitely want to take advantage of. It's a 30-day free trial where you get to view and use all of FreshBooks features. You don't even have to enter a credit card. It's not one of those things where in 30 days they just, you know, ding your credit card unless you tell them not to. It's it's not like that. You can sign up at freshbooks.com slash read to lead and let them know that you heard about this on read to lead in the how did you hear about us section and you'll be well on your way to enjoying that 30 day unrestricted free trial from FreshBooks. Again, that address, freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Jeff Goins is a blogger and author at goinswriter.com. That's G-O-I-N-S-W-R-I-T-E-R.com. Thousands have taken part in this popular Tribe Writers course. For the last two years, he set up the Tribe Conference 
in Franklin, Tennessee. I was uh, honored to be able to speak at that myself this past September. He's appeared on the show three times previously. First, to talk about his book, The In-Between, way back in episode four. Two years later, he was back in episode 71 to discuss his book, The Art of Work, returning just a few weeks after that in episode 76 to field listener-submitted questions. Fast forward another two years, and that brings us to today. Jeff's latest book is Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. And, and Jeff is the guy who subscribed to the Wall Street Journal online just so he could grab a screenshot of his book on their bestsellers list. Uh, <laughs> I would have done the same thing, Jeff. <laughs> uh, welcome back to the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I love this podcast and honored to be a part of this show. And congratulations on making the list. Uh, another thing to be congratulating you for, though, not nearly as exciting, uh, and that is with this appearance, you are officially back in the lead uh, as having the most appearances on the show. So there's that. I think that's uh, <laughs> like that's the thing I'm most excited about today, <laughs> particularly the, uh, because the people who are eating my dust now are um, <laughs> people I look up to, but, but maybe not for long. <laughs> maybe not for long. <laughs> Well, take a, a moment here in the beginning, Jeff, and, and share why you believe uh, this idea of the starving artist to be a myth and a bit about this new kind of artist, the thriving artist that, that, that you see emerging. Right. So I got this idea to write this book when a friend of mine sent me a news story from The Guardian uh, years ago. And the story was actually from like 2003. And it was about this guy named Rab Hatfield, an American uh, art history professor uh, who was living in Florence, Italy, and had discovered uh, a bunch of previously unknown bank accounts belonging to the artist Michelangelo. And basically what he found is that Michelangelo had $50 million to his name. And for most of his life, uh, he was rich. He was the richest artist of the Renaissance. And this was something I had never heard of and talked to a bunch of people and they'd never heard this either. And I thought, well, that's interesting because you know, living in Nashville, surrounded by musicians, artists, creatives, I hear a lot about the story of the starving artist. You know, I'm just scraping to get by, doing doing my best, but, you know, can't make a living off of my art. Like, this seems to be the norm. And so I feel like we're really familiar with that story. What we haven't heard is this other side of the story, the story of the thriving artist. And so I wrote this book, Real Artists Don't Starve, to tell that side of the story, which um, doesn't get the attention it deserves. Well, Jeff divides uh, the book up into uh, three sections. There's mastering your mindset, mastering your market, uh, mastering your money with rules for thriving artists, four dedicated to each section. And I love the constant uh, compare and contrast throughout the book between the starving artist and the thriving artist. Found it fascinating. And to me, it's it's uh, your best work to date for what for what my opinion's worth. Oh, thanks. Uh, and in the area of mindset, there there's another myth, I think, and, and it's that artists are born. Uh, mm. But Jeff, you assert that an artist is something we become. Can, can you expound on that idea a bit? Yeah, so the idea here is so many people I talk to feel like they've got to be born to do this, that if they haven't been uh, doing the thing that they want to do in art, to me, much like Seth Godin's definition, whom I know you um, uh, read and appreciate, mm. it, art is a gift that you give to the world. And so what it means 
to be an artist is that you are sharing your gift with the world, your creative gift, whatever that is. It could be an entrepreneurial idea. It could be uh, helping people uh, read more or uh, use books as leadership tools uh, as you do. Uh, it can be a number of things, but you know, sharing your gift uh, with the world is, is what I consider art. And so what it means to be an artist is that you're actually doing this. And I believe that you can thrive. It turns out that uh, many of history's most successful artists did not starve the way we think an artist must. And I think this um, mindset where we tell ourselves, well, you've got to starve to create your best work or to chase your passion, uh, particularly if it's a creative one, this mindset is actually keeping us from doing our best work. And so this journey of becoming a thriving artist really does start with mindset and begins with the belief that you don't have to be born this way. You don't have to be quote unquote talented. Uh, for every person that I talk to in the book and in the book, I feature historical examples as well as contemporary ones, you know, stories of people that you may not have heard of before, uh, people that I interviewed and, and told their story. Um, there was a point where they decided to become an artist to share their gift with the world. It wasn't something that just happened naturally. Uh, and it may have come from, you know, gifts or skills that were acquired through experience or something that you w just kind of grew up uh, doing. But for everybody, there was a point at which they had to decide, I'm really going to do this. And so if you're thinking, well, I'm disqualified from this because I I haven't, I haven't done this. I've got this idea, this urge, this thing that I want to share with the world, and I don't know what to do with that. And I find that so many of us feel stuck in the situation that we're in, and we stay there because, well, this is what I've always done. This is what is expected of me. This is how I make money. And in Real Artists Don't Starve, I want to argue you don't have to do that every day. Is an opportunity to recreate yourself, reimagine who you are and the story that you're telling with your life. And so, yeah, the first story, the first step to becoming a thriving artist is to begin thinking like one and then acting like one. And pretty soon you'll become one. A lot of times it can be really tough to feel like we're, we're, we're making any progress uh, along right. this path. What are some examples of how you've seen small say, incremental changes lead to what might be massive transformation? Well, there's what I call the baby step strategy, right? And this is what John Grisham did and how he became a full-time best-selling novelist. He did not do the thing, Jeff, that I think mm. a lot of people assume you have to do, which is quit your job, take <laughs> a big risk, go all in. Uh, instead, he did what most successful people end up doing, which is he, he didn't take a leap. He built a bridge. And I'm really big on this because I think we live in this – uh, culture is especially driven by internet media where it's like, go big or go home. Uh, well, sometimes you go home, <laughs> uh, you know, like, and often when you go big, you go home. There was a study at the University of Wisconsin, and it was a 15-year-long study uh, surveying over 5,000 American entrepreneurs and, and basically the, they kind of did like a split test. One group of business owners that they followed had quit their jobs to start a business. And, and then there was another group who had started a business on the side, gotten some momentum, and then eventually quit their day jobs to go full time with the business. And, and so you've got two very different groups of people, the conservative entrepreneurs and the risk takers. Well, in this long, extensive study, 15 years, the risk takers uh, ended up being 33% more likely to fail. 
And the conservative uh, entrepreneurs ended up creating more successful, thriving businesses. So a third mm. of the risk-taking uh, you know, businesses that were started ended up failing, whereas those who kind of did the slow and steady thing and gradually built their businesses had much more successful businesses in the long run. Well, this is what John Grisham did, right? Uh, he didn't start a business, but he decided he wanted to be a writer. And at the time, he was a new lawyer and a new dad. So imagine somebody who doesn't have a lot of free time. Uh, and, and he doesn't go, oh, I'm going to be a novelist someday. Uh, it's just this vague notion like, I wonder if I could do that. I like reading. Uh, I wonder if I could write a book. And it's a challenge to himself. So not a lot of risk there. Just uh, kind of uh, an idea. Um, it's more than a whim, though, because it's met with um, discipline. And so what he does is he goes to his law office a little bit early every day mm. and writes one page. And he does this for two years before he produces a full-length novel. He publishes the novel. Uh, it's called A Time to Kill. It doesn't sell very well. But he has so much fun, and he's done something that he didn't think he could do that he just decides to do it again, doesn't quit his job, doesn't risk the security of his family, uh, and starts writing the book that will eventually become The Firm. This one takes about a year, and uh, he ends up selling that to a major publisher. It becomes a bestseller, and three or four years into this process, he becomes a quote-unquote overnight success. Then he quits his job and becomes a full-time writer. This is the baby step strategy at work. Uh, it's not that you don't take risks. We all – I mean life is a, a an experiment in taking risks and managing risk. Every decision we make has risk associated with it. Staying at a day job yeah, it can be a risk. Uh, uh, you know, I mean you and I have both had experiences with that. Mm. And then becoming an entrepreneur mm. uh, is a risk as well. You know, be, be, you know, becoming a full-time freelancer, author, whatever. And so there's risk on both sides. The question for the person who wants to do interesting creative work for the rest of their life, the question you need to ask is what is the right risk for me to take right now? And, and typically that's a small step, not a giant leap. It's, it's taking a baby step and doing it over and over and over again uh, and, and to the point that it leads to this massive amount of momentum that once it gets going, like it's a slow start, but once it builds and builds and builds, you've got something that's very hard to slow down. This is, Jeff, is it not uh, essentially the strategy you employed uh, when you launched uh, GoinsWriter.com? Uh, is, is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's a very similar timeline. Mm. Um, it took about two years. Uh, and I, I, I never really understood this. I just thought I was weird. I thought I was like conservative because <laughs> I'm really big on this, as you know, because it, I feel like it's fairly counterintuitive to what so many people are saying about chasing a dream. But I learned this, uh, when I was working at a nonprofit, had dreams of my own, uh, was in my late twenties uh, and had spent five, almost six years at a job at this point. And I, I had these urges, I had these whims, I had these ideas, but I don't like failing. And I kept seeing my peers work a job for six months, get bored, get some new dream, quit that job, go chase a dream. And then six months later, you know, they were back working at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And that was not appealing to me. Like if I were going to do this and as my dream became more and more clear, particularly with writing. Okay. I realized, Oh, I want to be a writer and I think I could do this. I realized I want to do this hopefully for a long time. Mm. So what are all these people who are failing 
not doing. Well, they're not taking their time. They're being impatient. And I felt that way too. Like I felt impatient. I wanted to get out of my job and go do this thing that I wanted to do way more. But I also, you know, had a decent job and I didn't have a a jerk for a boss. And so I was like, I can stick around here. And I have a friend named Sean McCabe. You can find him online at seanwest.com, S-E-A-N, Wes. He says this. I think this is killer advice. He says, if you're going to try to start something, chase a dream, become a writer, start a podcast, you should be willing to do it for two years before you expect to see any significant success Mm. from it. I love that advice because it's very different from, I mean, I heard a blogger one time say, I started a blog and on day six, I had 6,000 people show up. So I knew this was my calling. Mm. I'm like, well, that wasn't me. You know, (laughs) on day six, I had four people show up and on day seven, I had five and it was a slow and steady thing. And then I, over time, started to see inflection points. I started to see um, exponential increases, but it took time. Mm. And so I think that's the norm for most of us. We need to find work that we enjoy and do it on the side for a significant amount of time, a year or two. And the first the first goal is to go, do I like this? Can I do this? Because so many people that I talk to go, well, uh, I, I want to be a writer. Are you writing every day? Well, no, I'm I'm waiting till I quit my job to do that. Well, first of all, then you probably don't want to be a writer because uh, it <laughs> – like. You want to be thought of as a writer, not someone who actually writes because it, it's a bo- it can be a boring job if you don't love sitting in front of a computer for four, five, six, seven hours a day. Um, uh, you know, So that's the first job is just to do it. Uh, and I feel like I have less time to write than I did when I had a day job because I have fewer constraints. So it's easy to kind of waste the day doing things <laughs> that feel like productivity that aren't writing. And there's all these other things like, you know, like I'm doing right now, you know, doing an interview or something, which is valuable, but it's not writing. And I can right. very easily go, well, I, I didn't write today. That was, you know, cause I've got, <laughs> cause my job description is a bunch of other things now. Cause I'm, you know, not just writing things, I'm running a business. So the first job, the first risk is to just do it and do it every day for a long time and see if you can actually do the work and enjoy the work and, and keep going. And then from there you can take you know, uh, more and more risks, but each step is small. So it's not that we're standing still. It's not that we're being so conservative that we're not doing anything, but the risks are not as big as you think they are. So John Grisham starts the first risk he takes is I'm going to start writing. That's a little bit risky because I could get rejected. I could be bad at it. I could not like it. I'm sacrificing some time, probably some sleep, getting up a little bit early, uh, but I can do that. And then the next risk is publishing a book. The risk after that is starting a new book. Uh, and there's like there's no like big, big moment for him other than, you know, when his second book comes out, it it does really well. But every step of the process, he's betting on himself. And that's the baby step strategy in action. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show before, but but I am actually a perpetual starving uh, songwriter. I, I've written a number of songs over really? the years that nobody but immediate family has ever heard and only then uh-huh. after they lingered in my head for about 15 years and part of the reason for that is is because i can hear my influences in those songs and i hear them and think oh it's, uh. it's just not original enough uh, yeah. and jeff you say that the thriving artists steal from from his influences and surely you're joking right <laughs> yeah 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 well i never knew that about you that's fascinating 
Uh, <laughs> and living in Nashville, I think does two things to you, right? Like it calls out the inner creative, you know, mm-hmm. particularly the inner songwriter. And at the same time, like squelches, it makes you scared because there's so much competition here, right? right like, right. like the person serving you dinner at a restaurant is a more accomplished <laughs> songwriter than you are. Yeah. Right, I was like, right. hey, okay. All right. Um, that's cool. Uh, I want to hear one of your songs. Okay. Uh, so steal from your influences. Mm. Uh, people go, what, you know, steal is a little bit strong. Look, um, I don't know of a better word for what we as artists and creatives actually do with our work mm. than steal. Anything else, like people say, like, well, you're inspired. No, you are borrowing. <laughs> and, and borrow is a bad word because when you take something, like when you take something and give it back, that's borrowing. When mm. you take something and use it and never, ever, ever give it back, you're stealing. You're taking something that doesn't belong to, to you and you're using it. So here's how this works, you know, where, where it doesn't end up in a lawsuit. <laughs> Uh, Austin Kleon's Austin written about this in, in his great book, uh, Steal Like an Artist, and it comes from uh, a quote that is often attributed to Picasso and lots of other people. Uh, but the quote is, um, uh, you know, good artists copy, great artists steal. And the idea here is that history's most successful creative geniuses did not do their best work in isolation. They didn't get a sudden moment of insight and then create. And when you hear these stories uh, and you dig a little bit deeper, you find out that like they're either myths, you know, like, oh, you know, the apple fell on my head and I discovered <laughs> gravity. Uh, they're either myths or they were like the the thing that happened after all of this other work that was done, typically uh, from studying the greats who have come before you, stealing their work, copying it and and using it to – um, uh, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, f- fuel your best creations and then ultimately combining all these different influences in something that looks original and interesting. And so the way that you don't become just another thief is you have to steal from multiple influences. Mm-hmm. So the copycat takes from one person and, and they deserve the criticism, right? Mm. Like if you go copy another person's song, well, melody for melody, you're going to get sued. But if you borrow this, like if you're a hip hop artist and you borrow, you know, this sample from here and that thing from there and you recombine it into something quote unquote new, well, that's art because you're borrowing from a bunch of different places. And mm. the historian Will Durant once said that nothing is new except arrangement. And this is the job of an artist. If you want to be creative, the best thing that you can do is not avoid other influences. When people say I'm writing a book, so I'm not reading anything, I always think that's <laughs> funny. Um, you should be reading more than you've ever read before if you're going to write a book because you need to borrow from all these ideas. And then your job is to curate those influences and then rearrange them into something new. If you do that, you are now a real artist. So I'm trying to decide which of my songs to send you. There's Natalie, the Nazarene Nurse. Um, there's, <laughs> they sound uh, like Beatles songs from yeah. Abbey Road or something. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's move to, to part two, uh, Market. The, the thriving artist, Jeff says, cultivates patrons while the starving artist waits to be noticed. I'm an introvert, Jeff. What's wrong with waiting to be noticed? <laughs> You're going to be waiting a long time. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so this idea was one of the first things that got me excited about the book. Mm. Uh, I believe that art needs money. 
and and the system of patronage has always existed. So, um, you know, if you're going to like, like if you're a hammer maker, right, you make hammers, you sell them to people like that's immediately useful. If you're a painter, you know, if you're um, uh, a cartoonist, a songwriter, um, we understand that, you know, intellectually that these things have value. Uh, I, I, you know, at an entertainment level, at an escapist kind of level, uh, and, and even like, you know, listening to music, watching movies, reading books, um, they help me make sense of the world around me. But like, you know, put me in, you know, post-apocalyptic zombie world, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm grabbing the hammer, you know? <laughs> and so the question has always been like, you know, what use is art? And I think it's a, a valid question. And I think it's incredibly useful, particularly when it comes to just our understanding of, you know, why we're here. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, like that's why there have always been these systems of patronage of uh, having a few people or even a lot of people who are willing to uh, provide the money necessary to help the artist live and to make the art today in what I call the new renaissance. I want to argue that patrons are not wealthy people like the Medici in um uh, you know, Renaissance Florence, uh, where you've got a few very powerful families or the Pope or the King or whatever, the patrons that we need are the people around us, right? Your patrons, Jeff, are the people who listen to your show and subscribe to your membership site. Uh, Patreon is a website where, uh, creators are doing this very thing. They're basically funding their work, not like a Kickstarter where you raise a bunch of money to create something and then you spend most of that money creating that thing. Um, you know, you're doing a podcast or a blog or a radio show and, you know, it's like public radio or public television where people are generously giving their money to keep the work going. So the patrons that we need today are typically people around us. And so this is the best time to do creative work because the opportunity through technology like we're using right now through the internet to connect with those people and and give them opportunities to fund your work is better than it's ever been before. Um, and so there's that opportunity where we can just reach everyday people who want to fund our work if they catch the vision. But there's also the influence side of things. And, and I argue in the book that when a patron gave an artist uh, his or her money – um, really what they were giving was influence. Mm. Um, so Michelangelo, who's kind of a theme throughout the book, he's a thread where I keep coming back to a story throughout mm. the book. Cause I think he is the archetype of the thriving artist. He is the model that we're trying to go after because he created great art and he was also very successful. And those two things did not compete with each other. The money didn't hurt the art, uh, and, and the art didn't force himself to sacrifice the money. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, that's a great example. If you really can have your cake and eat it too, if you do the things that, that he did the right way. So when he gets Lorenzo de Medici to, uh, be his patron, uh, yes, he gets money to create, but what he really gets, cause he moves into his house is he gets exposure uh, and opportunity. And in that house, you have a future pope. You have very influential uh, writers like Machiavelli, uh, you know, who, who are very influential in the political world. Uh, you've got other artists. You've got, you know, all of these people. And so when Michelangelo leaves uh, the Medici household, uh, he has this network that uh, he got. 
uh, and actually ends up funding his work for the rest of his life through the patron, Lorenzo. And so today, uh, it's less of an economic thing, but we understand that there are influencers, there are gatekeepers, there are taste makers, people who say this is good, this is bad, that if we can get access to these people, they uh, expedite the success of our creative work. And um, these people are not impossible to reach. You and I have both experienced, you know, reaching out to somebody through the internet, through email and going, how am I going to, how am I going to connect with this person? You <laughs> were one of those people for me. I mean, I heard your voice on the radio uh, when I first moved to Nashville and then, you know, I met you and then eventually became friends. Mm. And so the opportunity to get access to the voices and faces that uh, for many of us seems so far away, like it's never been greater because we live in this incredible age of opportunity where the playing field is fairly level and uh, the patron that you need is closer to you than you think. Well, Jeff, connected to some of what you've just said, uh, w- what are some of the advantages that you've seen of going where creative work is already happening. I mean, I see this in some of our mutual friends and, you know, in the town we live in, folks like Andy Traub or, or Grant Baldwin, who have recently moved or to be closer to where the action is. What, what are some of the advantages you've seen to that? So the book is comprised of 12 rules. And there's this rule called the rule of the scene. And, um, and in, in, in Real Artists Don't Starve, I say one of the ways that starving artists become thriving artists is they go join a scene. And for Hemingway, that meant moving to Paris. Um, uh, and, and for me, and, you know, our, our mutual friend Andy Traub, it meant moving to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And, and there's basically two ways to do this because this, this is something that I've gotten pushback on. Uh, the first thing I want to say is very clearly – um, there's research pointing to this. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi has a book called Creativity, and he says it's easier to go where creative work is happening if you want to be more creative than it is to just will yourself to be more creative. You have to change your environment if you want to change the kind of uh, work that you're doing. And we like we understand this, right? Mm. Like if you're ra- around a bunch of negative people, you tend to be negative. If you're mm. around a bunch of positive people, you tend to be positive. Uh, one of the reasons why – I got up to work out today is because there was a class of people who would ask me where I was if I didn't show up. And when I show up and all these people are working out, like I work out harder than I would by myself. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea of a scene. Scenes shape us. And so if we want to be successful in a certain field, it makes sense that we should go to places where people are already coming together uh, that are really, really good at that field of study or work. Um, and so there's two ways to do this. You go join a scene, which might might mean that you move, uh, or it might mean, in my case, that you you know go to a coffee shop, right? Instead of staying at home, like you go where the people that you want to connect with already are. The other way to do it, say you know you you live in some you know small rural town, and you're listening is going, well that'll never happen, or I've got you know four kids at home, and you know I can't just you know up and move to New York if I want to be a writer. You create a scene. Mm. And I think every place has advantages and disadvantages. Um, uh, there's some, you know, there's interesting research about this too. Um, Richard Florida calls this gr- group of people the creative class. You know, we're talking about creative workers and he they're in every industry. And he said one of the most important things to the creative class is a scene, you know, being in a place where creative work is already 
happening. And there are certain cities that are more attractive to the creative class than others just because of culture and food and diversity and these different things. But what he talks about is that every city, every place has certain advantages and disadvantages. And so I think your job is to not immediately pack your bags and move across the country or across the globe. It's to ask yourself, where are the people that I want to connect with? Where are they right now? Even if that means, you know, just in my small town of 1,100 people, where is somebody else that I can connect with that is uh, like-minded? I grew up in a town of 1,100 people, and and I was a weird kid. You know, we, we were – um, in a town of, um, you know, farmers basically. And I didn't get farming. I wasn't into farming. I did. I didn't listen to country music, you know, like I, seriously, like this was the culture. Uh, and I had this friend named Matt who lived down the street and he was the only other guy I knew that listened to classic rock music, right? ACDC and Led Zeppelin <laughs> and Pink Floyd. And he was just down the street from me. And, uh, we lived, uh, three houses down from each other for five years before I eventually became friends with him and realized we had all of these um, interests in common because I was an introvert. And eventually we just became friends and we hung out every day after school after that for years. So um, I think that uh, you cannot be creative on your own. And the first step in finding your tribe, finding your people is to go join a scene. All that means is that you Go someplace, and I would start locally, where people who are doing the kind of work that you want to do already are. And and then from there, you can, you know, like you'll you'll go to conferences and you'll, you know, you, you kind of become more emboldened as you do this. And you're doing this, Jeff. You know, there are meetups and mm. events and things that I, you know, locally that I've seen you at. For five years, I dreamed of being a writer, living in Nashville, mm. going – well, I don't live in New York or, you know, I'm not in a big city like Atlanta or LA and, you know, what opportunity exists for me here? And I was sitting on the couch watching people in my town, you know, start blogs and become full-time authors and entrepreneurs doing this thing that I wanted to do and going, well, that must be nice. And one day I was on Twitter and I realized, oh, what are all these people doing that I'm not doing? Mm. Well, one of the things that they're doing is they're showing up uh, and, and, and they're hanging out with each other. Maybe I could do that. And and the first step of that process is not to like necessarily, you know, ask all these famous people that you want to know out to coffee. It's just to show up. And I promise you, if you keep showing up over time and then help people just by being generous, you know, it doesn't have to be in any grandiose way. Buy somebody a meal, ask somebody questions, make them feel special before you ask for a favor or something. <laughs> um, if you show up, you be helpful you will eventually become a part of the scene. I think it's almost mm. inevitable. And um, and so, yeah, I, I think this is important. It is a rule. You cannot do your best creative work alone. You have to be a part of a scene. Uh, and you can come up with 99 reasons why the opportunity that you need doesn't exist where you are. But all you really need is to find that one other like-minded person who can affirm and encourage you. Maybe together you can create a scene. This is what the Bronte sisters did really, really well. They didn't do what Hemingway did and you know move to Paris. They couldn't do that. They were young girls. Uh, their father was a minister. Uh, he was he was you know preaching and then you know educating them at home. You know they were homeschooled basically, um, and they lived in Howarth, England, which was this tiny little town. And, and their father kind of kept them inside because he was afraid of letting them out into the community and being you know, 
stained by the world. Uh, and so they became their own little network, their own little scene. And so what did they do as um, children and, and then eventually as young adults? They wrote stories to entertain themselves and they shared them with each other and and, and they critiqued one another and, and they became this collaborative circle. And uh, over time, they got better and better and better. And now, you know, they – uh, their names are on you know pieces of timeless literature because it came out of this scene. Creative work, genius, always comes out of uh, a a group of people. And those group of people are, are gathering in some place at some time, and that's what we call a scene. Mm. Well, let's now, Jeff, uh, move to the money. And as an example of this, uh, my wife owns her own business called Beauty from Trashes. So she's, oh, cool. uh, it's a fancy way of, yeah. of saying she's a dumpster diver, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so she takes things people have otherwise discarded and creates new things out of them. And she, I feel like I, I need her to read uh, this section of the book, uh, specifically chapter nine, Don't Work for Free, because she struggles, has a hard time charging, in my opinion, what, she, what she's worth. What are some of the traps we fall into when when we don't charge what we're worth other than the obvious? This is something that uh, people struggle with. I struggle with mm. um, and just undervaluing your work. And there were several points in this book. You know, like I said, there's 12 rules and real artists don't starve. And the way I came to these rules was I interviewed hundreds of working successful creatives today. And then I, you know, studied several hundred um case studies, you know, historical examples from Michelangelo to the Bronte sisters to Shakespeare, you know, on through even Steve Jobs and Jim Henson and, and Walt Disney and all these other kind of more contemporary um, creative people in all kinds of different fields. And these were basically the 12 things that the successful creatives had in common with each other. And these 12 things that most thriving artists were doing happened to be the 12 things that starving artists were not doing. And so I said, this is interesting. There's a correlation here. One of those things was that um, the thriving artist rarely, if ever, works for free mm. because it's a trap. You set a precedent that you don't value your work and it's really, really hard to break. And this is something that I see people do and hear um, uh, a lot of creative people doing uh, on a pretty regular basis, which is which is this. The, the idea is, is that you start working for free and you get good enough that eventually you can start charging. Mm. Um, I, it makes sense. It's logical. I've done some of that. Uh, but what ends up happening is you start working for free and you keep working for free and you get good, uh, but you've set this precedent that I work for free. And it's a hard switch to flip. Mm. If for no other reason than, than the network that you've built now, your clientele – uh, all expect to get it for nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And so to go from zero to one is huge. Whereas to go from one to two, you know, mm -hmm. it's a small increase. Uh, and so what I recommend is you start small and raise your prices over time as your skill increases. And there's an artist that I interviewed in the book. Uh, her name is Melissa Dinwiddie. And she's she's a visual artist. She uh, started out doing ketuba art, which is like mm. hand lettering a marriage contract for Jewish weddings. And she got really good at this. But she would do it for friends, you know, kind of as as a gift. And um, so she got into like hand lettering and calligraphy. And uh, a friend of hers asked her if she could um, 
create a piece of artwork for her. And, um, and Melissa said, yeah, sure, I'll do it for you for free. And her friend said, no, like, I want to pay you. It was an actual <laughs> commission. And Melissa was very uncomfortable with this. And she and her friend went back and forth. And finally, they agreed upon the whopping sum of $20 because they both agreed this is what a print like this would cost uh, at Target. So, yeah, like, let's do 20 bucks. And that changed everything for Melissa. When she got that $20 bill from her friend mm. – she realized I haven't been valuing this, and if I value it, I can I can I can turn it into a job, and I can do more of it. And I, I love the Walt Disney quote where somebody criticized him at the height of his uh, success, saying, "Oh, you're just doing it for the money." And he said, "No, no, no, no. We don't make films to make money. We make money so that we can make more films." And so you have to charge for your art because it costs time and it costs money for you to do this. And, uh, and so I think charging what you're worth begins with setting a precedent. I don't work for free. Now, if you want to be generous, right, you want to give a gift to a friend. Like my wife is a photographer and, um, uh, and, and she has these, um, she, she creates these, um, uh, pieces of art basically where she has taken pictures of different structures, you know, mm -hmm. out in, in, uh, in the world and, and they make letters, right? Mm -hmm. So like. Uh, you know, a, a door frame could be like an I or a house could be an A kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And sh and when uh, our friends have, you know, gotten married as a wedding gift, she'll give them, you know, their last name in these like black and white, mm. you know, pictures in a frame. That's a gift. That's great. That's cool. Like she's not trying like, – like that's, that's a gift that we're giving to our friends. Uh, and so I'm not saying don't be generous. Uh, I am saying when you're working for free, understand that like this is not a, a marketing strategy, right? It, it is it is a a way that you're undervaluing your work, and I would very rarely do this because mm. the other person doesn't value the work as much. They just don't. We tend to not value things that we don't pay for, uh, and as a result, you don't really either. Um, when you're getting paid for something, you bring more of your A game to the table. You have to. There's this pressure there's this expectation that now you have to earn that money instead of just you know doing it because it's fun and so yeah starving artists tend to give away the farm whereas thriving artists don't work for free they charge with their worth and my challenge here if you're struggling with this is just to start somewhere small because you can always raise your prices we understand that people's rates go up that there's inflation that products you know that you can that a product that you can buy for a hundred dollars today may cost two hundred dollars in a few years uh, we get this but to go from zero which is this has no value this has no commercial value to even one dollar is a huge leap so start with valuing your work and then over time as you get better and more confident you can charge more and more for what you're offering uh, your wife's uh, uh, example and, and, and what my wife does are similar in the sense that my wife began creating these small projects as gifts at Christmas yeah. and wedding gifts. And it was doing that, uh, that other people saw it and said, well, I want to give that as a gift uh, down the road to this thing. Or that. And that's how it ended up becoming yeah. a business. <laughs> yeah, which is soup. That's smart, right? That is marketing. That's what mm -hmm. I call practicing in public where you're doing your work and you're doing it someplace where people can see it and go, Oh, you know, there's, there's value there. Mm. But you know, when you do it just as favors for people, right. Where they mm -hmm. would come to you and they, and they would totally go to a store and buy this thing. And they're coming to you cause you're a friend and, and expecting you to do it for free. <laughs> it just sets a bad precedent because, uh, as you, uh, as your wife has observed and as you, you've observed through her, you know, most businesses grow by word of mouth, at least initially. 
And so if you gave this thing to somebody for free and somebody says, where'd you get that thing? Oh, so-and-so did it. Well, what'd you pay for it? Well, nothing, right? Like it, it just sets a bad precedent. And again, like if you want to give, give, but don't expect to build a business off of this. I meet so many starving artists who are doing their work for free and they're bitter about it. They're mad because nobody values their work. The world will not value your work until you do. I do, as you know, some coaching and consulting. And, and I had a friend tell me recently, in fact, you've told me this before too, um, that I wasn't charging enough yeah. uh, for what I was, what I was doing. And, and I raised my prices in January to a level that I was frankly not all that comfortable with. And there's, there's this perceived value, I think, that comes along with this as well. The, the week after I did that, my um, conversion rates uh, went from what was usually 20 or 30% to 80%. <laughs> to see that kind of a jump immediately after raising my price, I was just like blown. It's like, what was I waiting for? What? Uh, yeah. And it's interesting how perceived value plays a role in that as well. Yeah, I have these friends who are very successful photographers, and they realized that there were these certain plateaus mm. in the industry where, you know, like there's like the $500 photographer. There's a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's, um, you know, a, a fair amount of like a thousand to $2,500 photographers for like a session, like a, like a, even like a wedding or something. Mm-hmm. And then there's like most people making a full time living off of, you know, wedding photography, for example, are, you know, kind of at that 5,000, you know, that that's kind of, you mm-hmm. know, top tier, top, you know, 90th percentile. And, and, and there were very, very few people that were like 10,000 plus, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like the top 1%. <laughs> and like, they're like, that's where we want to go. Mm. And so like every quarter they were doubling their rates to get there. Mm. And they started out at like a grand and then they went to 2,500 and 500 and then they were doing like 8,000, 9,000, 10, 12, $20,000 weddings. Wow. And they just stayed there and they never went back. Mm. And uh, there were a number of people in that industry who were mad at them. They're like, you can't do this. You can't raise your rates every quarter. <laughs> But they did, and they did really great work mm. as a result. And 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 what they told me was, um, look, like we we want to price ourselves for the market that we want to serve. And they knew there was a market there. It wasn't like they were overvaluing their mm. work, which can be a problem. They saw a market, and they're like, we're going to price ourselves into that market, and then we will be that good, you know? And it's sort of that, you know, uh, quote, it's like, uh, you're skating to the place where the, not where the puck is, where, but where it's going mm. to be, right? Like it's vision. You have to go where it's going to happen. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's very interesting. Almost for any price point, there is a market. And, um, sadly, the lower end of the market tends to come with a lot of expectations, a lot more work, a lot more handholding, particularly with coaching and consulting. And you may have experienced this as well. I notice, you know, doing one-on-one work with clients, the more I charge, like the easier the clients were to work with. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. You're yeah. like, it should be the opposite. You're paying more, but um, yeah, it's just it's really interesting. And and you never want to get into a situation where you're in over your head. Mm. But there's nothing wrong with starting at a certain price point and then just continually raising your prices as you gain more experience, doing it unapologetically and understanding that you may lose some of your customers, clients, et cetera. But you'll also be pricing yourself into new markets that honestly wouldn't have even considered you until you got to a certain price point because they're, you know, at the top end of the market – 
um, the typical customer associates value with price. And if the price is too low, the value must be low. Jeff has a podcast that you should check out if you haven't called The Portfolio Life. And I think, Jeff, I've heard you call yourself um, jack-of-all-trades, master of some. Is that accurate? If you, if... Don't be a jack-of-all-trades. Be a master of some, not one. Yep. Well, talk about the importance of, of diversifying our portfolio. Yeah, so this is you know an idea that I've been uh, a, a fan of for a number of years now, which is the idea that you don't have to just do one thing. Mm-hmm. That mastery actually is mastering multiple crafts. And, and combining them in interesting and unique ways. You know, it goes back to that steal from your influences idea. Um, borrow from different places and then pull it together. And, and, and this, your portfolio becomes your craft. Because uh, what one thing can you do that nobody else can do? Like nothing. I mean, that's a bad question, right? Can I play, <laughs> can I play basketball better? Than, no, no. Like, can I, can I code? But no. Like, but when you take... Um, a few different skills and you combine them and you add your voice to it. Now you've got something I think pretty unique and, and it may not be, you know, one in 7 billion, but it's probably one in a million, you know, like it, 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 it makes it inherently much more unique than, you know, I write books, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, there's, you know, what, half a million of those new books every year that come out. So, um, yeah, if, if you want to sort of broaden your appeal to lots of people, you want to narrow your focus, not down to one thing, but to a few things. And so the portfolio life is this idea that you can master a few different things and combine them in some interesting uh, ways. And it turns out, because I've been you know, uh, a proponent of this for a long time, but it turns out this is a great way to succeed uh, in a business, um, in a field where if you do one thing, you could go obsolete, particularly with automation and outsourcing and AI now. Uh, but if you got a couple of different things, you, you know, you always have diverse streams of income or income opportunities. In the book, uh, I give some, you know, fascinating examples uh, that I thought were interesting. One was Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson, you know, uh, incredible singer, great dancer, very good performer. This is what he's known for. Uh, But his fortune uh, primarily came from some other investments. And one of those investments was he bought uh, over half of the Beatles catalog for something like 40 to $50 million. And people thought he was crazy when he did this. And uh, last I read, that was worth over a billion dollars. It was probably his most valuable asset Mm. when he died. Now, what possessed Michael Jackson to do this? Well, um, somebody said that he just, he had an intuition for this kind of thing. He understood the music industry in ways that, you know, not everybody understood, probably probably because he did it since he was a kid, but also because he has this thing that so many creative people have that they think is a detriment and it can be used as an advantage. And it is what I call the gift of distraction. There is a fascinating scientific correlation between ADD and ADHD and um, creativity. And I talked to a researcher about why this is and she calls it the leaky filter. So um, what she means is um, uh, when you are focusing on one thing, if, if, if you're like me, if you're distracted, you're thinking about something else, 
right? You're I'm writing a book and then I'm thinking about, wow, I've got this podcast today. I'm like, what am I going to talk about there? Or, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm driving and I'm, I'm thinking about something else. She calls that the leaky filter. And we all have it to a certain extent, but creative people have it really bad. And what you have to do is harness your distraction. And so what that means is, you know, you don't just buckle down and do your one thing. At the same time, you can't chase every random idea. But what it means essentially, if you want to build a portfolio, dedicate yourself to one thing, right? Writing, for example. And then as you're doing that and your mind starts to wander or you start to think about other things, uh, write them down, process them. Uh, consider that some of those may be good opportunities. Think about it like an investor. So I would never go to my financial advisor and say, I want to buy you know, uh, 100,000 shares in this even if it were Apple, right? Like <laughs> that would be really risky. Mm. What I would do is I would say, uh, you know, like here's my risk tolerance. And so I want to do a number of things that are probably going to perform well. Some of them will lose money. Some of them will make money. And, and in the end, you know, I should be okay. This is what it means to build a portfolio. So look at your current scope of work, whatever it is. For me, that's writing. And then ask yourself, what are the other opportunities that come with say writing, speaking, um, for me, um, consulting, coaching can be part of it. Um, uh, and then teaching, you know, th these are kind of the things that I do. I, I, I write and then I, um, I, I speak and I, you know, obviously produce books. Um, but they're all, you know, I, I do some coaching and consulting. I do a lot of teaching through my online course. Uh, and, and all of these are income streams and they all kind of come from the, the main thing of writing, but these are opportunities that have allowed me to make more money than just off of writing. And they're things that I enjoy, uh, because of how I'm wired, but all of these opportunities initially came to me as distractions. I was doing one thing and I thought, well, what about that? You know? And so uh, I think it takes practice, uh, but you have to learn how to harness this distraction uh, and use it, you know, so turn it into this leaky filter thing. And this is also something that you can develop. Like while you're doing one thing, how do you spot good opportunities and, and, and how do you discern a, a good opportunity from just a plain, plain old distraction? For me, typically it, it's, it's connected to the core thing that I'm doing, which is writing. And it provides some opportunity for me to produce some kind of income, you know? So people want to, pick my brain all the time. Those are opportunities that I don't necessarily respond positively to every time because, well, it's probably not going to produce any income. I have limited resources to respond you know, to it, but mm. um, I'm constantly, you know, filtering opportunities where either I can create something once and continue to make money from it, or I'm going to learn something. It's going to make me better at, you know, kind of my, my core skill set, uh, or, you know, or I can make some money off of it. And this is our job as creative people is to constantly be honing, you know, our core skills, but be looking for new opportunities and new uh, skills to add to that portfolio. And Jeff, before we wrap this up, I, I want to add this while I'm thinking about it uh, beyond the writing. Uh, and I've always been a fan of your writing. I got a lot out of how this book is structured. This is structured the way I need a book to be structured uh, to ensure that I'm going to actually take what I'm reading and put it into action. So, so thank you for that as much as for uh, as much as for the content itself. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that, Jeff. I wanted to ask you. It's been a couple of years since you've you've appeared here, and and I want to ask you what you would say in that time frame specifically are. Uh, the books, a book or two that you have read. Maybe it's a book you read for the research of this book that has had a particular impact on you. 
Well, I, I think, as you know, I am a big fan of um, biographies. Mm-hmm. And I read um, – and there is a – like if you're just interested in the life of Michelangelo, and I talk a lot about him in the book um, just because I think he's so fascinating. Um, but um, there is a great book by Irving Stone – uh, called the agony and the ecstasy, and there was a you know an, an old film with Charlton Heston uh, um, with the same name. Uh, it is it is like Irving Stone does this incredible thing. If you don't like biographies and you think they're boring, read an Irving Stone biography. Uh, he wrote a few of them. He wrote one about um, Vincent Van Gogh as well, called Lust for Life. Uh, but they're novelized biographies, and they are meticulously researched. Uh, and the only thing that is essentially fictionalized is the dialogue because, you know, he wasn't there. Mm. But I mean, I, I read one of the books. And I was like, this has to be like historical fantasy or something. And it's not like it's very factual. Mm. And he just does this incredible job of retelling the the uh, stories of people's lives. Uh, and, and so the, the Michelangelo biography, Irving Stone, The Agony and the Ecstasy um, is absolutely incredible. Let me ask you finally, Jeff, uh, what are you working on? Now, obviously, you've just come out with a book, uh, but I know you've got courses. I know you've got conferences. Uh, what's coming up that, that we can, can look forward to? Well, uh, I'm going to continue to be talking about this book for a long, long time. Uh, but I find just as like a measure of sanity, uh, it's good to start the next project. And so I, as soon as this book came out, uh, you know, I hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. That was really exciting. It's like, okay, like I'm going to start the next book and, and I'm going to continue to talk about this book because I think that's important. Uh, and, you know, I'll be working on this new book for the next probably two years. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm working on something new, which means I'm doing a lot of reading. I may ask you for some book suggestions. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, thank you again, Jeff, for taking the time to do this um, and for uh, all the appearances you've made on the show. They've been some of my favorite episodes and among our conversations i think this is my new uh, favorite so i appreciate wow. it. it was a real treat for me thanks i mean it when i say this is my favorite book from jeff thus far and i have read all five again it's real artists don't starve timeless strategies for thriving in the new creative age all the links discussed in today's episode and there are many the book jeff recommended where to find him on the web both his website and his social media outposts as well as his previous Read to Lead podcast interviews. Links to all that and more can be found uh, in the show notes page for this episode. And you'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 173 for episode 173. Please do remember our sponsor, FreshBooks, with that free 30-day unrestricted trial available to you, no credit card required. Just visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. I want to say a special thanks to NDDS, who left a recent five-star rating and review in iTunes, calling the read to lead podcast one of the best. And Edna B. says, great content, insightful, and also gives it a five-star rating and even includes a smile emoji. Edna, that made my day. If you'd like to leave a rating and review in iTunes, five stars or otherwise, you can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or head on over to Stitcher, readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. And finally, I'll say we have a thriving community of Read to Lead listeners who are part of the Read to Lead University Book Club. There are some openings right now. If you'd like to check it out, find out more about it, 
visit readtoleaduniversity.com. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh, 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 oh,